Well, this is Labor Day weekend, and uh, as I work through our series and what we're going to do and, and kind of where we're headed, um, I know far in advance what I'm going to be speaking about. And this weekend was supposed to be the, the one that I was um, kind of most anxious but most excited to speak on. Um, it was the statement, everything happens for a reason. And, and actually, that statement was really the reason we're doing this series, that everything happens for a reason. In the series, we're calling it Half-Truths. And we've been looking at these statements that really aren't completely true. Uh, we say them, we hear them, we believe them. They impact our lives. They impact how we view God. Uh, they impact how we talk about God to other people. And so this was the weekend I was going to talk about everything happens for a reason. And then I kind of missed that it was Labor Day weekend. And then I started hearing more and more of our families were going to be gone. And so I thought, man, this is the one. This is the one I want more people to hear. And so uh, I'm punting that one to next Sunday. And so you are here today. You are not gone somewhere else like other families. And I wish I had cash or prizes to give you. Uh, but I don't. Uh, but you get a bonus week of half-truths. And uh, this is the fifth one. As I started looking through what I was going to talk about, uh, this is the one that, that kind of didn't make the cut. Um, and so, again, bonus, you get to hear it um, today. So this happened for a reason um, that you uh, are here and get to hear this. Well, nine years ago, I was the youth pastor still. I served as the youth pastor here at Trinity for a long time. And nine years ago, I took a group of students to Port Arthur, Texas, uh, Hurricane Ike had come through there, and so we went down to serve in Port Arthur, and uh, we were going to do some rebuilding of some homes and some carpet and some demo and just help out in Port Arthur from the destruction of Hurricane Ike. And so on our way down there, we were just outside of Port Arthur, and I needed gas. And if you've ever traveled with 20 or so teenagers, uh, those trips, usually what you think would go very quickly, you're talking 20 minutes for students to get out and get snacks, go to the bathroom. And so I had fueled the van, and uh, I was sitting in the van, and I was just kind of daydreaming and thinking and waiting for our students to get back in the van. And, and one by one, they loaded into the van and shut the doors, and you know, I would do the count and make sure we weren't forgetting anybody. And then as I drove off, I hear this loud noise, and I couldn't understand what it was until I looked down the side of my van, and I realized I had forgot to take the pump out of the, the tank, yeah. Avery, actually Mildred's granddaughter, was there, and uh, she would remember this. Um, but I remember that feeling of, uh-oh. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done that before. I hadn't. And so this was a new experience for me. And so I pulled it out of the van, and I took it into the, the station. And I said, I'm sorry, but I just pulled this out of the tank. And the lady looked at me extremely confused, uh, not sure what I should do, and she, she should do. And she said, okay. I was like, Okay, and so I walked out, and uh, I laid the, the hose on the ground and drove off. And there was one thing, many things, but one thing I learned that weekend about teenagers is they don't easily forget those things that happen, uh, especially when it's their youth pastor who does something uh, like that. It gets ingrained into them. And even as I'm talking and looking at Avery, I, I just know that Avery remembers that moment, and it, I haven't been able to forget it. I myself, it is ingrained in my mind, but it's also been ingrained in, in numerous of my students because almost every trip, I get a student who will say, don't forget to take the gas pump out of the... Pump. But it was ingrained. It was a part. It wasn't something that was easily forgettable. These statements that we've looked at, unfortunately, become ingrained into us. 
that the idea, uh, the, the statements that, that we've looked at, that God will give you more than you can handle, someone said that to you at some point probably, and it was probably in one of the worst moments of your life. And they were trying to help, and they wanted you to know that God was with you and for you and that God would never give you more than you could handle. But there's some problems in that statement, and we looked at that, this idea that maybe it's not God who is dishing out all these things. We're going to look at that more next week. And this idea that there are times where there is more than we can handle in our lives. And it takes a trust and a reliance on God and one another to get through those times. Maybe there's more happening than you can handle. And then we looked at this idea that God helps those who help themselves and how false of a statement that is. That if you read the scriptures, you see God helps those who are unable to help themselves. And then last week, we looked at this idea that God above all else wants you to be happy. All of these statements seem good. They seem to be true. They seem to be helpful, uh, usually spoken with the best intentions, but really I think can be hurtful. They don't give us a clear picture of who God is, the character of God. Uh, Often what we're hoping will happen is people would draw near to God through these statements, but I think maybe you're actually pushed away. I mean, if you're in the midst of the worst moment of your life and you are drowning and then someone says, well, God will give you more than you can handle. And you're thinking, there's more than I can handle right now. It's not always the most encouraging thing. And again, maybe pushes you away from God. And so it's in these moments that we're trying to see, well, what truth is there in these statements? Like there's little, little bits of truth in there. And we want to pull those out and understand those. But, but really, what is the truth behind all of these? And so today, the statement is one of those when I first heard people saying it, I was completely drawn to it. It was actually one of those statements that for a while made, made sense to me and helped me as I navigated relationships with, with people. Uh, but I actually think the more I dove into it, the more I heard, the more I spent time with people, the more I realized how false of a statement it is, or there was a little bit of truth in it. And that is the statement, love the sinner and hate the sin. Love the sinner and hate the sin. I don't know if you've heard that statement before, if that is a new statement to you, but we're going to look at that this morning. Uh, So where does it come from? Uh, You might think that you could open the Bible and you could turn to a chapter and you would hear Jesus say something like, when you're trying to help others, make sure they know how much you love them, but make sure they know how much you hate their sin. Like it almost sounds like something Jesus would say. That Jesus wants us to love people, but we need to make sure that the sin in their life is something that we hate, but it's nowhere in the Bible. You can't find it anywhere. It actually comes from St. Augustine, who was a bishop in North Africa, and he was writing to a group of nuns, and he was asking them to remain pure. And in asking them to remain pure, he said, have a love for mankind and a hatred of sins. I think what St. Augustine was saying was have a hatred for your own sins, not for the sins of the people around you, that you would remain pure as you live out the call on your life as a nun. And this was the call on their lives. Uh, And and so St. Augustine's trying to encourage them. But at some point, we have taken that statement and we have made it 100% true in the sense of love the sinner and hate the sin. But I think we have missed something. So just let's define sin real quick. Uh, The word sin you can find in the Old Testament, so pre-Jesus coming to earth. And in the New Testament, we see the word sin. And it means to miss the mark. Uh, It means to stray from the path. It means to know where you're supposed to go, but but to choose to go a different way. 
It's not necessarily by accident. Sometimes we can wander away and we realize a lot of little decisions have caused us to, to stray from the path that we know where we should shoot. I got a bow this last year and I, uh, I had some trouble learning to shoot it at first and I was learning to sight it in and you have to move the sights and I was shooting in our gym down here and it was one of my first couple of uh, times to shoot and I moved the, the sight the wrong way. And so I missed, I, I missed really, really bad and my arrow hits the wall and it shatters. I missed the mark. I, I, I tried to hit something, but, but here's the, the difference. The difference when we look at the word sin is to know where I'm shooting and choose to go a different direction. To, to know the target where I'm supposed to head, but to say, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm going to go somewhere different. It's a willful act. It's a willful decision to go against what God would have for us. And so there's this huge spectrum. So on the spectrum, we would include murder, right? I think most of us would say, that's bad. And we see that as a very clear sin. And that is a sin of commission. It's a sin that you commit. But there's also sins of what would be called omission. It's the things in our life we should be doing, helping someone when we see a need that we choose not to. And so these are all on this spectrum of what we would define as sin. Paul, who we talk often about, just says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This word all literally means all. He wasn't meaning something secretive. It doesn't mean something deeper. It literally means that all of us, whether you realize it or not, all of us have fallen short of what God wants for us. And this is what I know to be true, is that you, if you are not sure what you think about sin or about God, and you would have a hard time with that statement, all I have to ask you is if you've ever felt shame, have you ever felt regret? Have you ever done something and you felt in that moment, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that? Uh, we see that in our own lives. We're, we're staying with my in-laws right now. We've purchased a house. We're in the process of moving into it. And so we're staying in my, my in-laws' uh, basement right now. And uh, my, my dog was down in their basement the other day. And we come home kind of late the other night. And my daughter's ahead of me walking in the basement. It's still kind of dark down there. And, and she goes, oh, my gosh. I just stepped in poop, right? I'm like, what? what? What's going on? And we flip on the lights and, you know, my 12-year-old my daughter is like grossed out, as you can imagine. And, and I can see that my dog has had an accident. And, and just moments before that, Norman, my dog, is right at our feet and interacting. And in that moment, I look around and Norman's gone. And I look and Norman is now in his kennel, right? Because he knows, even as a dog, if you have a dog, you know this. You can walk in and almost immediately you know when they've done something they're not supposed to. And we see that in dogs and we see that in our own lives. We pull away from relationships. We hide the decisions we've made. We don't want to be found out. So if you would say, if you're here today and say, you know, I'm not really sure if I'm a Christian. I'm not really sure I believe in God. And I hear people talking about sin and I'm not really sure how I feel about it. We, we all know that it's a part of our lives because we have felt those feelings of regret and shame and guilt. Paul says, all of us, all of us have fallen short from what God wants for us. Now, just a side note, there's hope in the midst of that. There's hope in the midst of knowing that we're all sinful and we've committed sins and we've gone a direction away from what God wants for us, that there's hope because of what Jesus does on a cross and that he lives, that we can accept that and believe that and we receive forgiveness. So there's hope in the midst of that, but we know what it feels like and we know what sin looks like in our own lives. And so the statement, love the sinner and hate the sin, we've got the, the sin part. Now, the first part of the statement is true. There is some truth to that. 
the love the, the sinner. We're supposed to love sinners. The example I want to always follow is the example of Jesus. And we see Jesus over and over again showing us how to treat and respond to sinners. Now, as we use this language, uh, I just said we're all sinners. Right? So the statement that we're supposed to love sinners is, is kind of a ridiculous statement because we're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to love people, and so that would include everyone. But when we see in the scriptures Jesus speaking about those who are sinners, it was really cultural. There was a separation of who was uh, sinful and who wasn't. You had the religious people who on the outside looked like they had it all together, and then you had the outcasts and the, the people who kind of were living on the outskirts of town for whatever reason or were making decisions. Uh, those are the people, as we look at a few scriptures, that are the, the sinners that we'll read about. If you don't own a Bible, we're going to look at several scriptures here uh, over the next few minutes. And so if you don't own a Bible, there's a red one around you. That's our gift to you. Please take that. Uh, if you have a smartphone, maybe you want to pull that out and highlight. But, but we're going to look at several scriptures. The first one's found in Luke 19, uh, 5 through 7. Luke 19, 5 through 7. There's a page number up there for that red Bible if that's helpful. It says this. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him. So Jesus is coming through town. Um, and there's this guy named Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and tax collectors were also called the worst of sinners. Uh, not only were they working for a government that was uh, hurting their people, uh, but he went above and beyond. A tax collector would have went above and beyond and took more than they were even supposed to. And so this is Zacchaeus. No one would have liked Zacchaeus. No one would have wanted to be around Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming along. And so he climbs a tree. There's a song I won't sing, uh, but if you've grown up in church, you may know that song. Uh, but it says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Just get a picture of this. Everywhere Jesus went, there were these people who were pressed in against him. Uh, they knew who Jesus was. They knew what Jesus was doing. And everyone wants to get a picture of Jesus. Right, they had phones, everyone had their phones out, everyone's wanting to post, look who I just saw, right? Uh, and so th this is the, the setting. And then Zacchaeus, who is a wee little man, is a small guy, can't see, so he climbs a tree. He climbs a tree, and so this is a ridiculous picture. But in this moment, Zacchaeus doesn't care. I almost wonder if Zacchaeus had reached that point where he just hated what was going on in his life. He didn't care what other people thought. He just wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to be near to Jesus. And I wonder if for many of us, we would have this picture of Jesus seeing Zacchaeus and calling him out for what he's done. To tell him that he's put himself in this position, that his decisions have forced him to climb a tree, to want to be near to him. But this isn't what happened. Jesus sees him and says, come down at once. I see you. I know your story. I know what you've gone through. So come down at once. And he welcomed, welcomed him gladly. And then if it stopped there, that's still a powerful story. But then verse seven, it says, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. He ends up going and having a meal with Zacchaeus. A meal with this man that everyone hated, that wanted nothing to do with. And it was in those moments, it wasn't that, that Jesus called out what Zacchaeus had done. He just said, I want to be with you today. What else happens? Luke 7, 36 through 50. Luke 7, 36 through 50 says this. Now one of the Pharisees, who would have been one of the religious people, 
invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so we see Jesus spending time with all people, with all sinners, having dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Again, just get this picture. You, you have a woman who has a history. That she has a story, and everyone knows this story. And Jesus is eating with the religious people who would have always shunned this woman. But something happens in this woman's life. She hears about who Jesus is. She hears about what Jesus has been doing. And it's in those moments she hears that he's there. And she wants to be with him. Verse 39, it says, When the Pharisees who invited him saw this, said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. If, if Jesus was a prophet who knew the future, who was uh, someone more than just a, a religious person, there was something special about Jesus, people were saying, if he really was who everyone was saying he was, then he would know who this woman was, a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had this money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And you have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turns toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. This sinful woman has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Man, Jesus doesn't look at her and say, yeah, I know about your sin. But let's talk about those sins really quick. Like, don't touch me anymore. I need you to move back just a little bit. I know you are a sinful woman. No, he says, I, I know who she is. But more importantly, I know what she's done. I know what she's done to me. I know she, how she views me. I know what she's heard about me. And she has come to me with tears because she thinks that I can offer her hope and forgiveness. And Jesus, in those moments, probably touches and sees a woman who hasn't really been seen for a long time. Verse 48 says, Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We see it's very clear the way Jesus interacts with those who are sinners. It is very clear that he spends time with, he touches, he sees, and he loves. He loves people exactly where they are at, not where they could be. He sees them and he loves them. He spends his time and his words and even his acceptance. Do, do you see that? Do, do you get the sense that in those moments he, he accepts them as they respond to him? That he's not waiting for more. 
He's not waiting to make sure they do enough good things before he accepts them. He's not waiting for them to say the right things, but just the, the moment of faith where they just wonder who Jesus is, is enough for Jesus. And then I think one of the most loving things that could be said, not that Jesus did, but one of the most loving things that I think could be said about Jesus is found in Luke seven thirty four. And it says this, the son of man, Jesus, he came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What, what they were trying to condemn Jesus with, actually, I think, maybe one of the most loving things that were ever spoken about Jesus, that Jesus spent time with those people, the tax collectors, the worst of sinners, and all sinners. And so the people that Jesus surrounded himself were all sinners. We're all sinners, right? We, we've said that. Just some don't realize it. Some don't see a need for it. But it's both people that Jesus spends time with and interacts with. This is an extremely important work of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' birth at Easter is what, or at Christmas is what we celebrate, and we get to Easter and we, we celebrate that. But there were so many things that point to who Jesus was in his life. That his interaction with people shows us who God is through the life of Jesus. And so Jesus says, I'm. I'm here for, for them. I'm here for those people that are far off. He actually at one point said, look, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's uh, the sick, those who recognize that they're sick, that they're sinners. Paul even at one point recognizes this in his own life. Uh, Paul hated Christians. He killed Christians. He becomes a Christian. He plants churches and encourages them. And he's writing to a younger person here in 1 Timothy 1.15, and he says this, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says this, of whom I'm the worst. I wonder what would happen in our lives if we began to see the grace of God in a way where we recognize our need, our real need for him. I'm speaking specifically to those of you who today would call yourself a Christian. I know not everyone in here would, and some of you are, are investigating, and some of you just came with someone, but like, what if you could remember the grace that you experienced for the first time? That in those moments when you realize the amazing grace that we sing about, when you, when you remember that amazing grace, what if we could take the mindset of Paul and say, look, he, he has come into the world to save sinners who I'm the worst. Not... Not you or someone else, but me. Like my need for God is great. And so we do see that the first part is true, that we do love sinners. And the reason we love sinners is because God loves sinners, because God loves people, his people. But however, there's a few problems with this statement. I'm gonna move through these pretty quickly. Uh, the first one is this. Jesus never commands us to love sinners, but to love our neighbors. Uh, nowhere do we find Jesus say to love sinners, but to love our neighbors. He talks about the role of neighbor in our life. We, we see who he defines as neighbor is all people. All people. Our neighbors are those who we don't agree with. Uh, our neighbors are those who live differently than us. The ones who have hurt us, and we may even call our enemies, they're our neighbors. Are they sinners? Yes, but Jesus says to love our neighbors. Uh, why, why do we, why do I think 
that Jesus nowhere says to love sinners. That's because of this. I think the moment we begin to see people as just sinners is the moment we forget that they are our neighbors who are commanded to love. When we see someone as sinner, you see someone who needs to be fixed. If we're looking at other people and we know the sin or we think we know the sin in their lives, then we just think, well, they need to be fixed. But when you see someone as neighbor, you see someone to love. When you see them as sinner, you see someone to be fixed. If you see them as neighbor, you see someone to love. Uh, our new house, I've now met a couple of our, our neighbors. And um, I, I just, I, I, when I knew we were going to move, I began praying for them. I don't know them. I didn't know their story at all. And now as I interact with them, I'm learning more about their, their lifestyles, maybe even what they believe. And, and in those moments, now that I've interacted with them, if I see them as sinner then they become a project. They become someone where I feel like, well, I need to spend time with them because I need to see if I can fix them or if God can fix them. But if I just see them as neighbor who, who cusses to me like he would anybody else and lives a certain lifestyle, if I just see them as neighbor who I'm gonna serve and I'm gonna love and I'm gonna care about, I think that's what God has called me to do. That God has called me to love my neighbors and not simply see them as sinners, because the moment I see them as sinners, I see them as someone who needs to be fixed. And that's not my responsibility. Because what I think actually happens is it's by God's love, that it's the love of Jesus that we're drawing all these people to him, that that's what causes people to turn to God, not his anger or condemnation, but his loving kindness. Romans 2, 4 says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his tolerance, is patience, not realizing that it's God's kindness that leads you towards repentance. Repentance means to turn, to turn from a certain life, to turn from a certain direction, to, to no longer live a certain way or to do certain things, that it's God's kindness that leads us in a different direction. And so Jesus will never command us to love sinners because he wants us to love them as our neighbor. Uh, number two, when, he see, when we see others as sinners and not neighbors, we tend to serve as judge. We tend to serve as judge. Luke 18, 9 through 14 says this, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a religious leader, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, thank you, I'm not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I Get. God, look how good I am. I'm at least not like them. Completely different than Paul's mentality of being the worst of sinners. This guy comes to God in this parable, this story that Jesus tells, thinking that he is self-righteous and no need of God and fully judges those around him, specifically the tax collector standing behind him. But the tax collector, the worst of sinners, stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If we think we are better than others simply because we sin differently, then we've missed it. If we want to point out the sin in other people's lives without, without really looking at our own, then we're unable to love people as our neighbor. 
This man was confident in his own righteousness and he looked down on everybody else. But we see again the story in this is of a tax collector and Jesus knows that the worst of sinners, that those people who are as far away as possible are those who are wanting to come and be near to him. And in this story, as he's speaking to the religious people, he calls them out and says, you really have no idea of what grace looks like. You have no idea what it means to humble yourself and accept the grace of God. So if we're quick to see others as sinners and not neighbors, we will serve as judge. We begin to keep score of others' sins. We treat them different. I woke up this morning. Sometimes I, I work my message, you know, through the night and in the morning I'll wake up. And, and that just this phrase just begin to sink into my, my heart and my mind and asking myself how this works itself out. And this this statement how you see people is how you will treat people. How you see people is how you will treat people. If you see people as less than, you will treat them as less than. If you see people simply as sinners and not as neighbors, you will treat them as sinners and not as your neighbor. But if you see them as someone who is deeply loved, that when Christ goes to a cross and dies, it is for all people. Those who would never even realize it or even accept it. The way we see people is how we will treat people. So if we see people simply as sinners and not neighbors, we will treat them that way. And then we see this when Jesus, the third thing, when Jesus speaks to sinful people, he speaks of forgiveness more than their sin. It's almost as if, it's almost as if they have begun, they have begun speaking about their own sin to themselves. That they've realized the things in their life that aren't right. And then they see someone who might be able to do something about it. And Jesus offers forgiveness and hope to these people more than he talks about the decisions they've made in their life. I can't spend a lot of time, but if you look up the story of the woman at the well, he interacts with this woman who was at the well at the middle of the day because she uh, was known in the community as someone who's had multiple husbands, was currently with someone who wasn't her husband. And Jesus goes and interacts with this woman, offers her hope far before he talks ever about her sin. Or the woman caught in adultery, he raises her head and says, I don't condemn you. Long before he says, go and change your life and sin no more. It's Zacchaeus, it's the story of Zacchaeus who the love of Jesus in Zacchaeus' life is what changes him. So we see that he cares more about forgiveness and he cares more about offering forgiveness than first talking about sin. And I think that's good for us to understand as well. That who Jesus was the harshest to or with are the religious leaders. It's interesting as you think about the one time Jesus becomes angry, if you don't know the scriptures, uh, we like to point to that one time as Jesus wasn't always really passive. There were these moments where he comes and he flips tables. Uh, he, he kicks people out of the church, literally. He goes crazy in this moment. I think I can say that about, about Jesus, uh, that he goes crazy in this moment because of what's going on. But he was after the religious people. Uh, they were the ones that he often called out their sin not those who were far from him. Uh, Tony Campolo, who I appreciate his writings, he said, we love sinners and we hate our own sin. We love sinners and we hate our own sin. Psalm 139, 24 says this, see if there is any offensive way in me. Let's start there. Before we judge, before we look at the sin of other people's hearts and lives, let's see if there's anything in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. God, what's in me that shouldn't be? 
Am I being judgmental? Am I thinking about uh, people in the wrong way? Am I seeing them just as sinners who need to be fixed and not as my neighbors who need to be loved? And so here, uh, here are the three things I'm going to encourage us um, to do. That we're not going to be quiet about the problems of sin. And this is what I mean by that. We're going to hate and we're going to denounce evil in our world. That when we see racism, we name it. When we see hate and bigotry, we call it out. When we see those who can't fight for themselves, we do something because of injustice around. So when people are hungry because of systems, we speak out. When there's human trafficking, the sin of that, we hate that because it is evil. We stand up against that which is evil. But if we're honest, this statement, love the sinner and hate the sin, isn't really usually used about those things. It's usually used about maybe groups of people who we don't agree with. The choices people are making that we don't want to affirm or encourage or accept. We, we want to make sure that we love them, but we don't accept what they're doing. And I think the moment we say that we don't accept them, we don't love them. And what I mean by that is, if we're going to first call out sin, instead of just inviting them into relationship and caring for them, then we've missed what God wants for us that we're not so concerned about the results of sin and the problems of sin and the evil of sin as we are about someone who maybe is just not doing what we think they should do. And so we're not going to be quiet about the problems of sin. We're not going to be quiet about injustice and evil and the results of sin in our world. We will call those things out. Number two, we're going to attempt to bring restoration to those who we are close to and are followers of Jesus. Galatians 6 one says this, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are a spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Paul is writing to Christians about other Christians. So if you're in relationship with someone, if you are close to them and you see them uh, straying from the path, if you see concerns or things that you're worried about, then you gently have a conversation with them about that brothers and sisters in the faith and in the church, we will attempt to restore one another gently. And then last, we're going to just demonstrate love to one another. And this is what I mean by that. We're going to do good to one another, no matter who they are and what they do. We're going to invite them in. So this is a place where everyone is welcome. We say that this is a place where you can come and belong no matter who you are. That is just not something I say, but I hope that you believe and will live out in your own life. That we're going to encourage one another. We're going to support one another. And may it be our love that defines us. May it be what we are for, not against, that defines what we believe. And I believe when I die. And I stand before God. I don't think he's going to say, man, Kyle, you just loved people a little too much. I don't think that's what's going to happen. If I miss it, I want to err on the side of love. I want to love well. And so I, I told you in the beginning about my little story that was ingrained in the minds of my students and, and on me. And what I hope are people in our culture who we would say are sinners and far from God. Even if they don't believe what we believe, I hope that at some point it would be ingrained in their minds that people who follow Jesus are people who love others well, who love one another well. Well, Jeff and uh, a couple of the people are going to come up. We're going to end with our last song, and I'm going to pray for us. And as we do that, uh, can I just encourage you?
if you don't know about that love of God, if maybe you've been coming to church for forever, not just here, but it's been the story of your life, that you've just been uh, what you would call yourself a Christian, but you've never really realized that you as a sinner are deeply loved by a God who knows you completely. And he's not waiting for you to better yourself. He doesn't love a future version of you. He loves you now. And maybe it would be today that you would say, I want to accept that into my life. That I want to believe that for myself. That is a conversation that you and God can have in these moments. That you just admit your need for him. That you recognize your own brokenness and sin before you recognize anybody else's and your need for a loving God to give you this love and forgiveness. And maybe that's you today. And then maybe there's some of us who thought we've been doing well by loving sinners but hating their sin and making sure they knew it. What if we would just love people as neighbors and that we would trust that God would do something? Uh, Billy Graham, I'll end with this and I'll pray. Uh, The late, great Billy Graham uh, used to say something, and I've read it multiple times, I've heard it multiple times. He said this, it's the Holy Spirit, it's his job to convict. It is God's job to judge, and it is our job to love. Would you stand and I'll pray for us. God, I thank you for today. I'm so thankful that as a young kid in my brokenness and my pain that you intervened and came into my life. And I'm thankful that over the last 20 years, you've continued to do that. In these moments where I've thought I'm better than someone else because I sinned differently, your forgiveness has been there and you've been quick to convict me of that. And I pray that you would continue to do that. Lord, we don't have this all figured out. Uh, We don't always know how to interact and intervene and to help people who are far from you, especially when we want them to know about you. But God, would you help us to see that it's your love working through us that will lead people to you, that we'll just trust you, God. We'll just trust you. So would you help us to be people who love others well?